A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Two Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And, <clears throat> excuse me, today we'll uh, talk a little bit about, haven't uh, discussed a Holocaust-related topic for a while, and discuss a little bit a topic that causes discomfort to be addressed, but it's definitely an important aspect um, an often neglected part of the story, that of Jewish collaboration, uh, more alleged collaboration, we'll, we'll have to see, we'll discuss it, uh, during that uh, terrible time and the reaction of the Jewish people following the war. So we have the stories of kapos and different uh, different positions that Jews had under the Nazis, and I want to focus on one specific story and um, then we'll go back out and speak about it in a more general sense at all, um, overall, excuse me. And the story I want to address is that of Eliezer Greenbaum. It was an excellent book that came out several years ago where most of the information comes from by Dr. Tuvia Frilling, um, called a, in Hebrew it was called Mi Atalian Berger. Who Are You, Leon Berger, which is the uh, protagonist's uh, other identity, um, which I'll get to in a second. In English, it's called a Kapo in Auschwitz. It was translated into English. And the story revolves around the personality of one Eliezer Greenbaum. Eliezer Greenbaum was an interesting person, so we'll talk a little bit about him and where he comes from. There was a very famous Zionist leader in interwar Poland named Yitzhak Greenbaum. Yitzhak Greenbaum later was a signer of the Declaration of Independence of the State of Israel, served in the Knesset. He was a minister in the Knesset, very, very famous uh, leader for many, many years. One of those Polish Jews who served in the Polish parliament before the war, and then in the Israeli Knesset um, when the state was founded. Yitzhak Greenbaum was a very strong leader, a very strong personality, a very uh, long and, and distinguished career in public service. He was a real Warsaw Polish Jew, very active politically, um, outspoken, 
and very anti-religious also. He had legendary wars with the Agudas Yisrael in Poland, um, so much so that he, he, um, he uh, in, w- in one of the elections, I think in 1928, if I'm not mistaken, he was able to manipulate the way the minority parties, he organized the minority parties block in the Polish elections in the post-World War I era when Poland became independent again. And he at first went together with the Aguda and a lot of other minority parties against the Polish nationalists in the, in the elections to the Polish parliament. And in 1928 elections, he was able to arrange, <laughs> without getting into too many details, that the Aguda would not uh, be part of this minority bloc. And the Aguda was not able to send representatives to the Polish parliament during that elections because of Yitzchak Greenbaum. So there's a lot of enmity between Yitzchak Greenbaum and his party, the General Zionist, which was the largest Zionist party in the interwar period, and the Agudas Yisrael and the religious. Um, that's Yitzchak Greenbaum. Yitzchak Greenbaum has a son. And Yitzchak Greenbaum's son, today we would call it OTD. You know, he leaves his father's path. He... He goes off the derech and he leaves Zionism, he leaves any semblance of Judaism. His father at the end of the day is a Zionist, so that's a somewhat form of Jewish identity. And he becomes a communist, which is illegal in Poland at the time. Excuse me, he's a big embarrassment to his father. And he, um, uh, communist party is illegal in Poland in the interwar period. He gets arrested for communist activities by the Polish police. He's sent to jail. When he's released from jail, he escapes Poland and he ends up in Paris, in France. Now, Paris at the time, you have to understand, is the hotbed of revolutionaries. It's all the, it's like a, a city of refuge almost for the, for the, for People who for for revolutionaries, for communists, for 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 the opposite of communists, right? A lot of uh, white Russians, a lot of um, czarist uh, officers, former czarist aristocrats, nobility, army officers, end up in Paris, France after the revolution because they don't want to be stuck there um, with Lenin chasing after the white Russians when the communists come to power. So Paris is the is like a free-for-all society in, the, in those days, and it has a lot of uh, revolutionary elements, and he finds himself right at home amongst other Poles, Polish communists, Jewish and non-Jewish, and he's living in Paris and involved in all kinds of communist and revolutionary activity. What happens is, in 1936, the Spanish Civil War breaks out between the fascists, uh, who ultimately won in 1939, of Francisco Franco, and against the Republicans, who were supported by the communists. Um, And one of the untold stories, there's a lot of untold stories about the Spanish Civil War, it's a fascinating story, and uh, somewhat neglected, because right afterwards, World War II broke out, and it's kind of overshadowed. But... um, but the Spanish Civil War also attracted a lot of uh, lost Jews um, who were part of all kinds of revolutionary movements and socialism and communism. And they came to, they felt that they felt very ideological 
and they volunteered to fight in the International Legion, it was called, um, on the Republican side, you know, um, the, which there are many, many Americans, there are British, there are people from all over the world, Jews and non-Jews, you know, and who fought on the communist side um, against the fascists, and they volunteered ideologically to save Spain, to help the revolution, to... Uh, to uh, do what they felt was the right thing to do. So he joins also, and he's fighting in the Spanish Civil War, and he's a combat veteran. He, you know, he gains a lot of military experience during this time. He's on the front lines. And at the end of the Spanish Civil War, he returns to France. When World War II breaks out, he joins the French army. He's eventually attached to a Polish division or, or brigade, I forget what, in the Polish, in the French army. He, after France goes under during World War II, he joins the French resistance, and he's discovered as a Jew, and when push comes to shove, there's a lot of steps along the way. He gets sent to Auschwitz, but he's not sent to Auschwitz as a Jew, he's rather sent to Auschwitz as a member of the French resistance. Now, this is a person who's very well connected. He's connected to the communist underground. He's connected to the French resistance. So when he arrives in Auschwitz in 1942, he's not just another prisoner arriving in Auschwitz. He's very well connected in the, um, in the hierarchy of camp prisoners in a place like Auschwitz. And he reaches the position of a capo, which you had to have good connections for. And he was part of the underground in Auschwitz. Again, not like the average prisoner, and he is becomes a capo. How does he become a capo? One version is, is that other prisoners asked him to become in charge of one of the barracks. Another version is, is that he pushed his way into the position. Another version is, is that the Nazis appointed him to that position. Whatever it was, he made it to that position. Now, he's a capo there for about a year. And how does he act as a capo? Just attached the stereotypical image that the collective memory of the Jewish people has of a capo, and that pretty much fits it. He was a tough guy. Um, he was, you know, there was testimonies that he beat uh, fellow prisoners, that he was very cruel to them, that he uh, was violent to them. Some sources even said that he was involved in the murder of some Jewish prisoners under his control, and and every every evil that uh, might be attached to to a personality and the Jewish collective memory does not deal uh, uh, nicely to the memory of Jewish kapos. That's that's uh, an understatement. So he's eventually transferred um, after about a year to another labor camp, another labor camp, and to Buchenwald, where he's liberated. He returns to France. And he goes through two trials. First, the Polish communists try him as a capo in Auschwitz. And he's considered a persona non grata in communist Poland after the war. He's not allowed back to Poland. And he no longer has a country. And then two Jews identify him in a street in Paris as a cruel capo from Auschwitz. He's arrested by the French police. There's an eight-month trial. And eventually he's acquitted, but not because they say that he's innocent. They say he's acquitted for lack of evidence. They say he's acquitted because 
the crimes were not perpetrated on French soil to French citizens. In other words, he's not given a, a ticket of innocence. Now, this caused a big stir because this guy is a celebrity. He's a veteran of the Spanish Civil War. He was a prominent member of the Polish Communist group. And in the Jewish people, he's the son of one of the most powerful and famous Zionist leaders, who was one of the heads of the Jewish agency at this point. Now, Yitzchak Greenbaum, his father, had immigrated to Israel from Poland in 1933. He had been living there since 1933. And now his son, who had always been an embarrassment because he wasn't Zionist, he had become communist, he had gone off to fight in the Spanish Civil War, he had been in jail. Now he's an even bigger embarrassment to the family, to the Zionist establishment, to his father, because he was a capo in Auschwitz. And he was on trial now in France in the post-war in 1946. His father comes to his side during the trial. He comes to France. He leaves Israel. It was Palestine at the time. There was no state of Israel yet. And his father is going through a very hard time. And when his son is finally acquitted, his son really has nowhere to go. His son is a... A hated personality. He can't go back to Poland. He's not allowed to. After the trial in Paris, he's hated in France. And he's hated by the Jewish people because he was a capo. So where is he going to go? He has nowhere to go. He's a lost soul. He was already in his late 30s at this point, still not married. What's he going to do? And his father doesn't know what to do with this kid. So his father was very, we would say in Yiddish, Tzabrachim. He was very broken. And he didn't know what the next stage would be. And he happens to meet in Paris at the time an old rival of his from the Agudas Yisrael, who worked in the Aguda office in Paris in the visa department trying to get visas from the Jewish agency to give out for the quota that Agudas Yisrael was given. The British were not giving that many visas. Any visas they gave went to the Jewish agency, and the Jewish agency gave a certain percentage, a small percentage to the Agudah, like they gave to every other organization. So he says, uh, Mr. Yitzhak Greenbaum, this Agudah representative who, I don't remember who it was, it says in the book, in Frilling's book, I don't remember, I should have looked it up. And uh, he says, what's up, what's going on? You look down, and he tells him, you know, my son, and it's a big busha, it's a big embarrassment, and I don't know what I'm going to do. And I'm trying to convince him to come to Israel. And he's willing to come, even though he's anti-Zionist, he's a communist. But he's willing to come because he has nowhere else to go. So he says, so why don't you have him brought to Palestine, to Israel? So he said, because the Jew, I can't get a visa. You can't get a visa, you're one of the heads of the Jewish agency. He said, yeah, but my son is uh, such a bad name that no one wants to give him the visa. And something about the personal interaction with the pain that a father is experiencing of his wayward son and the hopelessness of the situation moved this Agoda representative. So he says, you know what, I'll give you an Agoda visa. And this is, this is like, you know, like too unbelievable to be even true. And he says, you're going to give me a visa? We're like, we're like enemies, you know, and no one else is willing to give him a visa because he was a capo and here you are. So Agudas Yisrael ends up giving a certificate, an immigration certificate, a visa to this son of Yitzchak Greenbaum with all the baggage that it comes with, and he comes to Palestine on an Aguda visa. A lot of stories about how the Belzareb came, escaped Europe during the war with a Zionist visa and how people held it against him, and how the Satmarov got on the uh, Kastner train of the Zionists and how people held that against him. Well, 
Eliezer Greenbaum, the communist capo, son of Yitzchak Greenbaum, the enemy of Agudis Israel, he gets into Palestine on an Agudis Israel visa. So talk about irony of history. There you got it. So he comes to Israel. He's very low profile. You know, he has nothing to do with the establishment. He's just there because his father brought him there. He starts writing his memoirs, which is a valuable testimony because almost no former capos wrote memoirs. He joins the new Israeli army during the 1948 war, and he gets killed in uh, defense of Ramat Rachel in Yerushalayim, out of Yerushalayim, near Talpiot, in a battle during the War of Independence. There were rumors flying around Yerushalayim on the day that he was killed, which in certain communities persists until this very day, that he actually was not killed in battle. He was killed by his fellow Jews in the army, because they wanted to kill him because he was a capo. That was a conspiracy theory uh, made up at the time, and it just goes to show how much he was hated uh, by uh, others in, 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 in society for his role as a capo. And, um, but he was killed in, 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 in battle. So that's, that's the end of the story, seemingly. It's not really the end of the story. His father tried to resuscitate his memory afterwards and make cast him as a hero for the state of Israel, dying for the country when, you know, and, and there's a dispute about his memory till today when, when Dr. Frilling's book came out and it was translated into English, it brought it to the, to the fore again. And then a couple of years ago in Israel, there's a movie that came out called A Kapo in Jerusalem, Kapo Birushalayim, which I think already has English subtitles. Also fantastic book, fantastic movie. In fact, I heard a lecture from Dr. Frilling about uh, the book, and he, uh, we asked him about what, the, what was the sources that he used to be able to find it. And he was the first one to actually go and look into the Polish communist archives and into the French uh, archives to find the trial transcripts from his trial in 1946. He even told us that the, arch- the French archive would not allow him to copy files, and it was an enormous amount of transcripts. There was no way he could sit in the library there, in the archive there, and and take notes for a month and a half. So he thought he you know what to do. How's he going to get all this uh, valuable information out? So he went over the bylaws of the archive, and it said you're not allowed to photocopy it, but, you're allowed, but it doesn't say anything about recording, because they're trial transcripts in a text, in a written material. So he told us and he thought of an idea. He hired a couple of doctoral students in Paris. And he said, can you sit for a couple of days in the archive and read off the transcripts into a recorder? Just read them. Then I'll take the recordings back to Israel and I'll be able to analyze it from a recording and not from the original transcripts. And they, so when the archive found out about it, they said, okay, there's nothing we could do to stop you. We never even thought of making a rule like that. He said, but that's what we call a Yiddish cup. To, to think of that, and that's how I got my sources. That's a side point. So the analysis of all this story of Eliezer Greenbaum is, was Eliezer Greenbaum a good guy? Was he a bad guy? Was he neutral? Was he very wicked? Was he a hero? Like, what's the story with Eliezer Greenbaum? Now, why in the world would he be considered a hero? So the question is, what was he doing as a capo, and what, what was the, the role that he played, and the role that he saw for himself, and the nuances that we try to see, and that's what we see from the defense that he used at the trial, and that's what is, is portrayed in the, in, the, in the more stable 
more, excuse me, not stable, the more balanced view that we can have 75 years later. You have to remember that in the 1940s and 50s, the Jewish people had just gone through a trauma called the Holocaust, and it was very hard to see things objectively. And it was very black and white. And, uh, and uh, you know, someone who was seemingly was a collaborator, who was cruel, uh, was seen in a very harsh judgment. But in reality, the, the, it's more nuanced. What do, we mean? what do I mean? He, he saw himself in a role, in a position that he's able to try to help people under very adverse conditions. It's the adverse conditions because in Auschwitz, with the SS around. And therefore, if he sees people davening, he used to pick on specifically religious people. And if he would see them doing a mitzvah or davening or things like that, he would very cruelly have them stopped. And that was, they said, oh, not only was his father anti-Aguda, but look at him, this communist crook. He's just a cruel person. He beats people for davening. Can you imagine? And he said, because if the Nazis catch people davening, not only will that person get killed, there is collective punishment, and other people in the barracks will get killed. Not only that, but I need to help people preserve their energies. Not only that, but I'm trying to protect them so the SS don't catch them. And so on and so forth. And he believed that operating under adverse conditions, he needs to be rational, cold, and cruel to be able to keep people alive. He can't explain his reasoning to every single person. And therefore, the way he saw himself was doing the best he could do in a very harsh situation it's trying to keep as many people as alive. He's trying to steal food and to get extra rations for people. And in order to do that, he has to cover his tracks. And he had a justification and a rationalization for every single thing he did. And maybe he exaggerated in the way he portrayed himself, which is likely true. And, but, but from it, we can get somewhat of a more balanced picture, which brings me to another overall point. Which I'll end with. In 1950, the state of Israel, the very new state of Israel, passes a law called Chok Asiyat Din Im Hanatsim Ozrehem, the law dealing with Nazis and their Ozrehem, their helpers, their collaborators. Now, why did they pass this law? This law is the only law till, till today in the state of Israel that carries the death penalty. They eventually tried Adolf Eichmann under that law. But Adolf Eichmann was not living in the state of Israel at this time, nor were there any uh, Ukrainian collaborators or Lithuanian collaborators or Dutch police or French police, any, any collaborators from the non-Jewish collaborators from the Holocaust, none of them were living in the state of Israel. So what was this law made for? And there was definitely no SS living in Israel in 1950. The law was specifically made for Jewish collaborators. Now, what does it mean a Jewish Nazi collaborator? Members of the Judenrat in the ghettos, the Jewish ghetto police, who assisted the Nazis in deporting the Jews, kapos in concentration camps, sometimes plain old collaborators. You had people like Avram Gansvach, who was the head of a, gang, of a group of gangsters, of mafia gangsters, Jewish gangsters in the Warsaw ghetto called the Dratziners, the, third, the, the 13, because their office was at 13 Lechno Street in the Warsaw ghetto, who were paid Gestapo collaborators. There was a lady in, in Berlin, Stella Kibler, who, who helped the Gestapo find the Jews. You had some pretty low Jews out there who were outright collaborators with the Nazis, which is really 
something I could elaborate on and give a whole other uh, episode on. But what I want to focus, is on, focus on is not the story of the collaborators during the war, but rather how the state of Israel reacted to it. And, and what they did was they had kapo trials in the 1950s and 60s. There was over 50 trials of kapos and other collaborators. And one of them was even sentenced to death penalty. Then he, he applied for a, 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 um, a, uh, word is escaping me for, uh, for the, the, the president was able to waive, uh, waive the death penalty to pardon him. Thank you. Uh, to pardon this this fellow, so none of them were actually given the death penalty. When Eichmann was captured, uh, he he was given it, but none of the Jewish collaborators were actually put to death. Um, after the Eichmann trial, there was a slowing down and ultimately a disappearance of the Kapo trials because, again, the Eichmann trial brought out the cruelty and the horror of the Holocaust. And what eventually judges in the 1960s in the state of Israel, and one of them specifically wrote in his decision that it's really really difficult to judge. Uh, the victims uh, during those impossible situations, the decisions that they made, um, when we're sitting comfortably here in a free country, and we're going to judge what people did in very adverse conditions, and sometimes they they were the, their judgment was skewed because of the conditions that they were under, because they were desperate to save themselves, because they felt that this was the best decision to do to try to save other people. Whatever their reasoning were, it's hard to call them genuine collaborators. Along came a researcher named Yeshayahu Trunk, who was a fantastic researcher and wrote a lot about, uh, he was a historian, and he made a very important distinction. He said collaborators, uh, or he made a distinction between collaboration and cooperation. Collaboration means someone who is involved in the Nazi program to wipe out the Jewish people, let's say a Ukrainian collaborator who is holding the gun and shooting uh, along with the Nazis because of ideological reasons, because he wants to steal their property, because he's going along with the Nazis' final solution. Cooperation can be someone who himself is a victim, a Jewish victim, who is in a position of power. He's a Jewish police in the ghetto. He's a member of the Judenrat. He's a capo in a camp who believes he can help himself or other people or even save people uh, by cooperating with the Nazis because he's desperate, because he himself is starving, because he himself is panicked, because he himself is scared, because he himself is a victim. He's supposed to be part of the final solution. So he's willing to cooperate, but not because he wants the final solution to be carried out, not because he's going along with the Nazis and he wants the... Jewish people to be exterminated. That's not the situation. But even Yeshayahu Trunk uh, was not too kind with the memory of the Kapos. And I recently, uh, a year and a half ago, interviewed uh, a Jew, a Chsidish Jew, Chsidish Yid, who is 102 years old. And he died a few months later, so I was able to get him in before. He was 103 when he died. And he was clear as anything, with a perfect memory till the very end, an amazing person, a lot to say about him in general, Yeshua Eibschitz, and he told me that he met Yeshayahu Trunk once, and he told him, Mr. Trunk, or Dr. Trunk, let me tell you a story. When I was in a concentration camp, this, this Yeshua Eibschitz told me this, that he told Trunk. I had typhus, and I was stuck in the barrack one day, I couldn't go to work. 
And the kapo, the Jewish kapo came in, and he was cruel, he was horrible. He starts yelling at me and beating me. He says, get out, you lazy dog, go to the roll call. And he says, I'm sick, I have typhus, I can't move, I can't stand. And he says, you're just being lazy, go work. And he shoved me out the door and pushed me towards roll call. And my two friends of mine held me up, and I came back to the barracks at the end of the day, basically collapsing, almost dead. And I came back to the barracks, and I found out that the Nazis had made a selectia during that day. And anyone who was sick in the barracks was taken to the gas chambers. And this kapo had saved my life. And uh, if I had died, and other people had witnessed it, then they would have said, there goes a Jewish kapo who's a Nazi collaborator, who's being cruel and beating people and not having any mercy on a sick person. But really, this kapo saw himself in an impossible situation. He knew that the Nazis were making a selectia that day. And he wanted to save people's lives. He couldn't go over to them and say, Shefala, go out, you might go to the gas chambers. It doesn't work like that. In the conditions of the concentration camp, it was impossible to work in normal ways. And this was the only way that that kapo was able to be able to save his life. So no one's going ahead and saying that the kapos were all great tzaddikim, that they were all amazing people, or Eliezer Greenbaum was a tzaddik, or he was an amazing... No one's saying that. No one's going to say the opposite way, that they were all Nazi collaborators. But ultimately what we find out is that the truth is somewhere in the middle. And uh, that's just a little bit touching of the story of kapos, of Nazi collaborators. So this was Yehudi Geberer. With Jewish History Soundbites, you can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and of course tours and trips to these places hear about Jewish history, you can sign up for Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. You can follow us at, J, at, at uh, on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.